Hi, and welcome to the 54th episode of the Machine Ethics Podcast. This episode, we're talking to Josie Young. We recorded the 19th of February, 2021, and we chat about AI making businesses more efficient, but not obviously saving humanity quite yet. How AI ethics landscapes changed over the last five years, ethics roles and their collaborators, feminist AI, and whether chatbots are over, responsible AI at Microsoft, simply doing cool stuff, and much, much more. Thanks for listening, and if you'd like to find more episodes, go to machine-ethics.net. You can contact us at hello at machine-ethics.net. You can follow us on Twitter at machine underscore ethics, or on Instagram at machine ethics podcast. If you can support the podcast, then go to patreon.com forward slash machine ethics. And I hope you enjoy. Hi, Josie. It's awesome to have you on the podcast. Uh, thanks for spending time with me again, because we saw you back in episode 12, I'm thinking, for COGX 2017, when we first met. Yeah. Um, so uh, if you could just introduce yourself, who you are and what you do. Of course. Hi, Ben. Uh, it's great to be here. So my name is Josie Young and I'm currently living in Seattle. I'm a program manager and I work in Microsoft's ethics and society team, which is super fun. Awesome. Thank you. So, yeah, so we met before um, back in 2017, which seems like so much time has passed since then. And we've both acquired children since that time so <laughs> life has happened um pandemics have happened all sorts of things have occurred um you are now working with microsoft and you used to work um in other places um including in the uk uh, we and you did a master's as well um at goldsmiths um i've got these in my notes you see um there's a question that we always ask on the podcast which i can't actually remember if you've answered before but it's been such a long time um that I would like you to answer again. So, Josie, what is AI? Such a great question. Um, AI is, as we're currently talking about it in the world, is basically super um, intense machine learning programs. Uh, I think, and also I think when we talk about AI, we're talking about business applications of machine learning programs. So, yeah, how, you know, because I think a lot of sort of what we call AI these days has been, you know, driven, developed out of business or industry, um, often in, in collaboration with academia. But yeah, I think AI is at the moment this sort of like enterprise scale uh, machine learning capabilities uh, that trying to mimic, I guess, human capabilities like image recognition, speech recognition that kind of stuff i mean obviously i would say that because now i work at microsoft <laughs> and that's uh, i mean that part of that division of the company so um yeah i think i think it's um a very specific perspective actually yeah. so you think because it's interesting that you say that that it's kind of tr it's almost transitioned into this kind of um software as a service world or area mm -hmm. which maybe i don't know five years ago less so maybe um, you know, there's a, there's a change, a transitional period there. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, previously it was more like research theory. What would we mm. need to make this happen? Um, you, know, ha you know, and all those like lovely utopian things of how we can like change the world with AI. Whereas, you know, 
I don't know if we're changing the world with AI. <laughs> I think we're um, making businesses more efficient and I think we're maybe um, being able to run some like cool analytics on, on things that we wouldn't have been able to, to run analytics on before. So being able to answer questions that we couldn't previously answer, but whether we're doing it on like a scale of, you know, saving humanity, mm. uh, I'm quite sure that's where the focus of AI is uh, primarily at the moment. And also I remember reading um, Dr. Genevieve Bell of Australian National University wrote something recently talking about cybernetics. So cybernetics were like, this is this is all new to me, um, but cybernetics were like, you know, a cool big thing, sort of like the, the sort of 60s and 70s. And Genevieve Bell, she wrote this in the Griffith Review recently. And she's basically talking about how, you know, the AI kind of Dartmouth conference of in the 1950s that sort of kicked off this whole like artificial intelligence thing. You know, they were very, very focused on quite specific applications of, of AI and basically how do we use computation to, you know, replicate the brain. Whereas cybernetics was more about how do we integrate this kind of technology, this kind of thinking with human systems, with culture, you know, and they had anthropologists at their, their conferences and things like that. And so it's interesting that we are we're on the AI track, I think, primarily rather than the say the cybernetics track. If we were to you know to have continued that, yeah. So, but yeah. I guess there's some overlap there as well because you can't yeah. have one without the other. You know, the the application of the machine learning stuff could be for you know transhumanist ideas or you know this, um, applying them to a more human context. Yeah, I think so, but I think. I just think it it has a whole lot of blind spots though because you know I think it's I can't imagine if you'd had a conference with psychologists and anthropologists as well as computer scientists as well as like information systems people you wouldn't necessarily have say a um a machine learning powered like sentencing software that was discriminating against you know black people basically mm. um and then when you raise that to the company they're like no there's no bias here and it's like, <laughs> like there is because it's institutional racism in this co this context uh and you're amplifying it um and you know so i i just think it's you know by just going down the ai track we're like so many blind spots about mm. oh no data is not neutral mm. um you know just like doing some maths on stuff isn't, you know, neutral. Um, yeah. And so I think it's just, it's such a narrow scope sometimes that to our detriment, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that this, we've had this kind of um, discovery period where growing out of big data and the excitement around of big data analytics and like, oh, we've got all this data, we've got social media, we've got the internet doing all these amazing things. And now we have IoT and like things producing data. You know, what can we do with that? And how do we process that? And how do we make sense out of that stuff? And in in my mind, the analytics uh, or the AI machine learning kind of revolution, um, summer, let's say, summers and winters, uh, people like to talk about, um, has really grown out of the fact that we've got all this data and we have to do something with it. And some most of that is kind of like you were saying, kind of a, a business kind of area to to make sense mm. out of their the data that they control um yeah it's really interesting that we've kind of had to discover for ourselves the pitfalls of like some of that thinking some of the oh just apply this you know mathematical equation with all this this nodal structure and it will just be fine because like it's technology and technology doesn't care about anything it just just what does what it says but as we have previously discussed in all these different podcasts you know that's not necessarily the case. So 
Yeah, and it's it's so tricky. It's it's so there's so much nuance as well in trying to I guess explain those those intricacies to people because you know we we're led to believe the scientific method um, produces objective results. Um, you know, it's as close as we can get to kind of objective truth, I guess, in a way. Um, and so if you, you know, you've been kind of steeped in that and maybe you've got a, a science degree of some kind, you know, it doesn't really make sense when the <laughs> rabid feminist turns up and it says nothing is objective and, you know, everything, you know, has different interpretations, everything is subjective. Yeah, it's it's really tricky to sort of try and peel back the nuance and say, you know, you, your intention can be good and you can still produce something that creates harm in the world. Yeah. Um, Hard. Yeah, it's hard. So there is those sorts of just kind of discoveries or those things that we've kind of fallen into accidentally and had to kind of sort out and um, you know structure make some sort of structure and, and and some of that is to do with what we now call AI ethics, right? Um, so there's this large area which has overlap all over the place, uh, which is kind of AI ethics. And um, before, maybe people were talking about, you know, digital um, sociology or digital ethics or um, and there will be, you know, people in universities in humanity departments doing that. And there'll be uh, technicians in computer departments doing AI stuff or analytics stuff. And then and now those kinds of areas are coming together, um, in my mind anyway, to, to, to create this kind of area of AI ethics how how do you think as well as those kind of pitfalls that we've kind of things have changed over the like uh, the last three years since we met but maybe last five years kind of how these things have kind of progressed and changed i think it's really so it's amazing when you and i met at the cogex conference because i think you were one of the first people that i met when i said um you know hey when you think about this ai ethics thing and you're like yeah totally and i was like people don't usually agree with me when I say these things so it was like so exciting and like awesome and I think it really is about that you know like AI even though I sort of gave a, a quite cynical kind of description of what AI is at the moment you know we've got all these kind of digital networks around the world that we're now like putting all this like machine learning kind of you know autonomous system stuff into and that started happening about five years ago yeah. and you know and until we started to see those kind of negative effects of doing that like automating these kinds of things at scale at a scale we've never seen before as a society you know it's yeah it's it it's it's amazing to see how quickly it's changed and that it is much more mainstream now Mm. um to to be thinking about the you know societal impacts of this stuff i've been pretty like i think you know europe and the uk was really awesome because everyone kind of naturally thinks about things in this way and you know the eu is doing a whole lot of work around principles and all that kind of stuff it's brilliant um and then over here in the us it's like a very different perspective you know i think the tendency in like europe and the uk is to think about it kind of top down you know policy principles mm. governance um and you know regulation and stuff like that whereas what i found in the U in the us it's much more kind of actually where is that harm meeting communities how are we doing kind of community activism around this a lot of grass grassroots mobilization mm. um a lot more focus on kind of applied tools to to help teams do things differently rather than necessarily a tendency to those kind of frameworks and governance and, and stuff that is maybe more European in bent, um, if you 
to compare the two. So I think it is interesting that five years ago, yeah, no one was really talking about this. And now we can, we're can we starting to see some pretty consistent but divergent themes from the different regions. Um, and obviously I'm like super Anglo-centric, so I'm sure there's other stuff <laughs> in other places um, I'm definitely not aware of. So. Yeah, I think it's I think it's interesting when you and I met. I think you and I have all, always talked about how do we do this in an applied way? How do we like sit with the teams who are building the technology and and like helping them make different decisions and help them think differently about it? Um, you know, and other other very smart people can do the kind of policy stuff and the the top level mm. stuff. Um, yeah. Sorry, just rambling at you now. No, no, this is great. great. That's, great podcast. That's Thanks. <laughs> I think that's the beauty of podcasts, actually, that they're, they're less structured um, and rumble chats. So I, when I was researching you briefly, because it's kind of, because I, I already know you a little bit, so that helped. Um, but um, I already know that you've done some work in this area, but you also have on your Twitter account that you are a feminist AI researcher. So I was just wondering mm. if you wanted to quant uh, qualify uh, what that meant to you and, and what it means to be a feminist AI researcher and why someone might do that? Um, so I think with with anything feminist, it's always completely politically motivated. Um, so when I was doing my chatbot research, which so when I did my master's back in yeah, 2016, 2017, and that was the research I was doing when you and I met, um, you know, I was sort of trying to understand why why have we why are we designing all of our voice bots to be women? So Siri, Alexa, Cortana, Google Assistant all had women's voices, mm -hmm. and most of them also have women's names. Um, and so, from a feminist perspective, I'm like, hmm, not so keen on this. What's going on here? Um, and as I was doing some kind of trying to research, like, you know, what what do we have currently in terms of our like academic frameworks, our maybe more applied kind of perspectives on how to to really disrupt this way of designing our you know that interaction mm. layer with our AI systems. I couldn't really find much. I'm like, surely feminists have a huge amount of opinions on this. Um, and I found opinions from like the 90s, but I couldn't really find many kind of more contemporary kind of academic. And I thought, all right, well, that's <laughs> clearly a massive problem. And and also, you know, I think I what I did also observe in my research was that, you know, people were still very narrowly thinking about you if you work in AI you have to be you have to be PhD in physics or you're a computer mm -hmm. scientist or stats it's all about stats yeah. um, and I thought actually that's one of the problems with how we're designing AI is that our teams are not multidisciplinary they're way too narrow they're way too kind of you know those kinds of technical skills driven um, and so I thought what what well, obviously what the world needs is a feminist AI researcher who can bridge those two gaps those two worlds by saying here is a kind of social science framework and way of thinking about the broader effects of what you're building and then distilling that down in a way that teams who are building stuff day to day can consume and understand and then alter how they work um so you know taking those you know because i just i don't think it's fair to, to assume everyone in a you know product team you know, is a rabid feminist. I mean, they should be, obviously, but that's like not a fair like burden to put on everyone. Um, but, you know, what we do need to do is like be able to translate those ideas, um, that way of understanding how like, you know, societal impacts um, are going to manifest, you know, based on, on AI, like how you're designing the AI system. And so I guess it's like 
from the perspective of sort of saying, hey, we need to have more people with kind of like a social science perspective in the space. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's being a, a feminist, um, but also that we need to really challenge who we get, who we give permission to be in AI. Um, and, you know, I'm someone who very proudly has never coded a day in my life, um, but I still think that I have an absolute right to be in the room where this stuff is being built. And it's actually important um, that, you know, people with social science perspectives, mm. as well as the more kind of, you know, technical perspectives can can be working together to like build more cool stuff basically more cool stuff so, yeah. yeah yeah more cool stuff and I, and you were talking about that um back in 2016-17 and it i it finds it really interesting because it's a lot of the stuff that we were talking about then as you know this kind of uh, applied nature you know how can we actually help t teams enact this stuff is things that i have seen you know starting to happen which is really nice as well so uh, in some of the work i've done and i'm sure some of the work you do now at microsoft you're kind of like enacting some of that now which is really pleasing you know to to have gone well we we need these people and we're not seeing them at the moment and then you're suddenly seeing them or like teams are incorporating some of that uh, learnings um into how they operate and then hopefully into those projects right yeah exactly and i think you know in the last like definitely like less than a year in the last mm. yeah last year there is a growth in in like jobs coming out for people who can do that bridging so previously you're like hardcore like data scientist you know this is the person who works in ai yep. heap of roles out for that type of person um maybe you'd have like a social science researcher who's doing some academic research on the impacts of ai in society yep. but those two will never meet kind of a thing whereas in the last 12 months and i don't know if you've seen this as well more and more roles are coming up that are this hybrid kind of you know and often it's sort of someone maybe with a, a policy or a project management background who can do the bridging really well and who can work effectively with a range of people in a team to help like yeah think through those those kind of social impacts of what you're building, but also provide a structured way to move through that product development life cycle and actually mm -hmm. produce something that's high quality at the end, which is cool, which I think is, yeah, is the, the way forward. And I'm hoping, and I, and I think, you know, I, I would say that, you know, Microsoft is really like investing in this, mm -hmm. and which is one of the reasons why I was like <laughs> over the moon to get to kind of work in this team. But you know, how do we how do we prove to everyone that having these multidisciplinary teams actually drives innovation and you know you produce better quality stuff at the end mm. actually and and that is you know in and of itself is good too and important too so yeah i think um with the like feminist chatbot research that i did you know one of the amazing collaborations i got to do after that was with the feminist internet and they used my, my research to design um, a workshop for students at the University of the Arts London to build feminist Alexa prototypes. It's like so fun and so cool. And, you know, I think they came up with six prototypes in total. Um, and these are students, you know, so they're, they're prototypes. Um, but just like the way that this like amazing collection of students across a range of disciplines were able to work together to build things that were designed to meet like meaningful human needs. They thought very carefully about the conversation design. Um, they thought carefully about, you know, what kind of data, oh, they didn't talk about data actually, they talked um, 
we talked more about like those how would in say in the conversation design would the voice bot handle harassment for example mm. um and yeah just like and also it was really fun like one of the voice bots would read out rupaul quotes but like in a robot voice and it was the greatest thing i've ever heard it's so good so yeah i just and it just like proved to me like you know all of these prototypes were so innovative and so interesting and needed by these different communities yeah. um but i couldn't necessarily see so like amazon creating those kinds of skills on their own um, it would need to have come from, you know, a more diverse um, community, I guess. So, yeah, I just think that there is something really, really cool we've not explored yet enough as an industry around, you know, using these tools and these perspectives to actually, like, make cooler stuff, mm. more cool stuff. More cool stuff. I like that. I, that's going to be a soundbite that goes to the end of, <laughs> just make cool, cool stuff. Um, so uh, this, is, you... this is a bit of a piffy comment, but, like, are chatbots over <laughs> i mean maybe i think it's all voice assistants now true true yeah <laughs> um, yes no, i think yeah i'm yeah possibly i mean i don't think I they think... rocked my world as as they were you know you know what i mean <laughs> that the 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 service that they often provide is suboptimal you know to something else which um, could be a search, that's fine. A search is fine, uh, or could be direct contact with you know a person, or possibly direct contact with a database that is going to go crunch something and then come back to me with an answer. And that's kind of a different way to do it as well. But like this um, informational chat that is supposed to be useful hasn't really yeah kind of changed my worldview and all that. Uh, but again, with voice as well. Uh, but I, I, I might be um, speaking from my my particular viewpoint, which is that you know, obviously, the the privacy aspects of some of these things is questionable um, with the voice, you know, the, the voice um, devices. So I don't necessarily have them in my house. Um, but it's almost like you know, something like VR or something like that. It hasn't really hit the public consciousness as much. Uh, or that's what I feel like it it hasn't anyway. Mm. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think, you know, I don't have voice bots in my life, really. I turn off those features, I I guess. And, you know, and I think part of it is, you know, again, you can't you can't separate these, these systems and products from the companies that build them. Mm. So I'm like, I mean, with Alexa, I'm like very suspicious of the motives behind that product um, and how I'm being used as a data point for a massive business that has only made more money as a result of a pandemic. Um, you know, so I, I'm very suspicious of those things. But also I think, you know, coming back to like chatbots, I think it's actually just like, I think people didn't realize how hard it is to make a good one. You know, it's hard mm. to find the right use case or the right like, scenario to where a chatbot is the best way forward. Um, and then, you know, do the, the research and the design work to, um, you know, to have a good conversation design that lines up, you know, sets expectations with the user, but lines up with the, you know, the data you have to make it work. And yeah, so I think, but I think when, when those, that, that sweet spot is identified, I think it can work really well. So there's the Clio bot, which is a mm. financial services bot where it's basically meant to be like a digital friend that keeps an eye on your money for you. And the conversation design is very feminist. Um, 
they use a lot of gifs they have you know jokes they do a lot of very rapid kind of research and development work with their customers about the tone of voice and the way that they communicate different things mm. um so i think you know and that i think that works quite well and that's a really um you know it's a really great product and so they've found that sweet spot and they've invested in doing it well um whereas you know when you're a massive company that just wants an faq bot well you're not going to you're not going to invest in the same way, are you? You're not going to actually want the bot to have a personality that's kind of identifiable. Um, it'll probably, you know, be a bot that's named after the, you know, the daughter of the CEO, for example. Um, you know, so I think, I think because they're they're pretty like they can be quite cheap and easy to produce, yep. um, but that doesn't necessarily make them good, um, which kind of sucks because you can have some good ones. You can have some good, like yeah. the Clio one is really cool. There's also um, this great example I read, I think Nesta had a write-up about it, where they had a chatbot that was part of a primary school. And so there was like, whenever all the kids came in, there was like a big panel of like smiley faces or like mm. sad faces or, you know, different like emoticons representing different emotions. And all the kids would like hit the one that they were feeling that day. Yeah. And, it, and it gave the school like this pulse check of like the vibe at the school that day. And then there was a chatbot that accompanied it that was all about supporting these kids to be emotionally literate and connecting them with each other. So like peer-to-peer -peer support networks and stuff as well. So, and I was like, that is just such a lovely, there's such a lovely example of thinking about how can we use this technology to enhance well-being in a primary school? Yeah. Um, you know, and then you've know, got your privacy concerns and like make sure that's not hackable, obviously. But um, but I just thought that's just so nice. That's so cool. So I think there are some some spaces where there is it's a role for a chatbot yet, but it is like it is, I think, hard to find that that nice sweet spot. Mm, that sounds really interesting. I'll have to I'll have to um find that and put it in the notes as well. Um, it's nice because it's you want those for you know being a parent you want those activities that you have with digital technologies to have some sort of connection at some point you know because obviously obviously a lot of them it's it's consumption and it's um, faceless you know kind of communication almost I know that we are actually talking now and I can see you so you know not so faceless but like um, having her bot like ask Je uh, jimmy to go to see if you're okay because you're feeling down that day or something like that that's super cool like that's really nice yeah. um, um i was wondering um if you are able to tell us uh what you have been up to somewhat at microsoft yeah all right i'm gonna, I'm gonna try and give you uh give you a good rundown yep like sorry um yeah. i guess some of the aspects I'm, I'm interested in is because it's a big company, right? Um, so I'm interested to why they might have hired people like you in that, in that team that you work and kind of what the remit is, you know, that sort of thing, you know, how, what can you touch and what can you affect and what kinds of jobs and um, activities you do? Yeah, totally. So one of the reasons I've like always been quite interested in this team is because, you know, like we've already discussed, you know, one important side of transformation when we talk about ethical AI is like supporting the people directly who are building the stuff. Um, and it actually, you know, translating principles into action is very, very difficult. And, you know, the ethics and society team at Microsoft has been, I think it was set up in like 2017, maybe, uh, by Mira Lane. And she's just our, our resident genius. She's amazing. Um, 
it was really thinking about how do we bring a design and research kind of mentality to this and have it connect with product. Mm. And I think it's really super unique and the fact that, you know, this is a team that Microsoft's resourcing, you know, it's important. And since then, the kind of they've grown out their responsible AI sort of infrastructure in the company so there's the office for responsible ai that set the policy and standards there's the ether working groups that are sort of our genius academics who are really sort of trying to keep i guess the company you know aware of trends and then you know solutions to different things as that they um come about and then with a team like ethics and society we uh, work more closely with product teams so working with them directly to say you know thinking about our you know responsible ai principles at microsoft you know this is how you can bring them to life with the product that you're building mm. and so our team is like multidisciplinary which is really cool we've got lots of research and design and it's just like blow my mind every day with a lot of like sharing <clears throat> within the team and i'm just like everyone here is amazing it's very tiring mm -hmm. um being around such smart people um but yeah so yes yeah, so, and then like we and i'm a program manager so we've got now our, our pms as well and yeah, we just kind of go and work directly with product teams and do cool stuff. So one one example um, that was actually released recently is the custom neural voice product. And that is where people can um, basically it's like build a synthetic voice, mm. um, which is really cool. But obviously there's a lot of different you know things we need to think about with that type of technology. And so it has been released and we've got a gate over it. So you need to apply to be able to, um, to you know, get access to the technology. There's a series of questions that mm. kind of, you know, try to understand what you want to use it for and, and whether that's sort of, I guess, in line with um, the kind of uses that, that Microsoft thinks are appropriate with this tech. Mm. So I've, you know, been involved in that as well and just really thinking about how do we, how do we see end-to-end all the possible kind of impacts and and work with product teams to to i guess you know manage them mm -hmm. hopefully eliminate <laughs> all the bad ones um and then make sure that you know when it when it's out in the world that you know that's we've sorted all that out so yeah it's pretty it's a pretty unique space mm -hmm. actually and um and the team itself is made up of people who've you know really variety of backgrounds you know multidisciplinary in terms of experience as well as skills as well as disciplines um which is cool mm. no sounds lush um yeah it's pretty good pretty... <laughs> I definitely sounds terrible. I mean it's worth moving across the world in a pandemic before that's definitely. true you, you did move from the UK to the US during the lockdown last year so or not not the lockdown it was just afterwards I think but it was it was a strange time yeah, I think it to... was before the lockdown was listed actually was so it? we couldn't see anyone so we'd been in London for like six years yeah and then left. Left. And then Slept. you had to quarantine as well when you got there. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we didn't know anyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it wasn't hard That's true. to quarantine. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Good goodness gracious me. Well, that sounds great. Um, this is probably going to be a no, but I was wondering, you know, when you're working with these teams in this job or your previous um, positions, whether, you know, you're working with those teams and you maybe get a bit pushed back, you know, being that person um, from a in an industry that's traditionally been you know break things um, <laughs> um, you know fix them later whatever sort of style um, do you what kinds of things that people usually um, have uh, problems with or gripes with or or need more understanding on. Mm -hmm. 
I think initially it's just like a misalignment of mindsets. Um, you know, like quite often I can say something and people will just look at me like I have two heads. Like, why are you, this is a data science project. Why are you talking to me about user research? Like I don't, it's mm. not something that makes sense to me. And which I'm sure you've experienced as well. Yep. Um, and, and so I think it's really, and again, this is where this kind of bridging idea happens. Like, you know, I, I often front up to, and you know, more so probably in my, my previous role, um, but, you know, turning up to teams that honestly have never thought about things from this perspective before. And so I am like an alien mm. and I'm standing here grinning at them, being like, I'm going to take you on a journey, mate. It's going to be something else. And they're like, I didn't sign up for this journey. What on earth are you, what are you going to do to me? So I think it's, it's like really recognizing where people are at and really trying to find that kind of shared language. So I, you know, a couple of years ago, I was working on a data science project and I'd been really trying hard to sell this idea of, hey, maybe we need to go and talk to the stakeholders who are going to be affected by this thing that you're building, um, you know, maybe, and, you know, got quite a bit of pushback on that. And then I realized I had an ally in the data scientists that we were working with because they needed to understand more context in the data that they were using to train all the stuff. Mm. And the only way we were going to get that context is by going to the, the stakeholders. And so I almost had to kind of Trojan horse a couple of things into, oh, but, you know, because they, you know, this this client, you definitely agreed with everything the data scientist said and was very comfortable not agreeing with anything that I said. So I basically had to say, okay, well, they they understand that framework. They they trust that framework. So I need to find a way of expressing, you know, you know, the need to have user research, the need to think about this from a service design perspective, the need to really understand the context of this huge data set that they were using. I had to try and repackage that into the language that, and the, the mm. process and the approaches yeah. that they already trusted. And, and and work very quickly to demonstrate the value. Like this is how this has made the quality of this product better. And that's, so that's why it's important. Mm. And so there's, yeah, a bit of tr kind of Trojan horsing going along and then and then really trying to convert it into impact and saying, hey, look, this thing was like way better because we, we, we asked the question. Mm. If we hadn't have asked the question this, you know, you would have been stuck with something that you couldn't use in this way. Yeah, I think that's really so. one of the most difficult bits because it's almost like if you know measuring that impact of the work is, is tricky because if you've done the work then maybe you won't have seen the negative side of things in such stark re reality um, but if you hadn't done the work you would have been stuck with the bad stuff possibly so mm. you know quantifying that is actually quite difficult I would say um, so you have to kind of justify it in different ways um, do, you, do is that the same with you? Kind of the justification of your job is difficult, or are people getting on board with that now? Um, I think because you know Microsoft has been talking about their responsible AI principles for a little while now. There is the broader infrastructure across the company, so it's not just me on my own mm -hmm. saying, "Hey, this is important." <laughs> um, it's you know, there's like a there's a whole lot more of us, um, and. You know, I, I know, and this was said to me by quite a few people before I joined the company, but I think, you know, under the CEO, Satya, there's been a huge, like, change in, in culture and just general vibe mm. at the company. And and I think the Responsible AI conversation has really benefited from that. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of hard work had already kind of been done in, in different ways to make that easier, mm -hmm. which is great. Um, 
and you know and when you have a company of that size and something does get mandated from the top it's you know it's a very different authorizing environment than you know if you're a consultant um yeah you know and you've got to come into a, an existing culture and practice that you don't have any control over and you're not necessarily going to be there long term so yeah so it's is quite a different dynamic actually mm. um yeah but I mean, I do, I do like a challenge. So I did, I did enjoy my previous role of, of <laughs> just basically turning up and, and smiling at people for long enough <laughs> until they started to agree <laughs> with me. <laughs> oh, so yeah. Um, I, know. I mean, what's your, what's been your experience of it? Because it's, it is, it is like the biggest barrier is just getting that, that, that trust and that buy-in really quickly. Yeah. I think, I think it's the economic the value which is the difficult one so you have to try and uh, especially the, the work i do is often directly to business right so you're trying mm -hmm. to sell in yourself um to a business and you're essentially selling you know we need to do these things otherwise it's going to go badly it's almost a um due diligence sort of style um position and no one likes risk people. No one likes due diligence people. The legal department, they they the no the they just say no to everything, right? So it's about like trying to convey the value that you bring for you know creating better products, which hopefully better suit the people you're trying to target, um, and hopefully are just generally better for society. Um, and trying to convey the idea um, is in a terms that you know some of these people understand it's quite difficult i found um it's quite a hard sell but i think like we were saying earlier that there's just been more coverage of the sorts of um things that have gone wrong and just kinds of things that you might see actually in the media now which have um slightly made that easier for us um but like you were saying earlier about some teams just like never never having thought about it you still do get these conversations with people and you're like yeah i mean we haven't really done anything like that or we haven't done an ethics workshop or we haven't really thought about the impacts of this or you know all these sorts of conversations you'll have with people and you're like this is mental <laughs> you hire me now hire me now. <laughs> please hire yes give me all us. <laughs> like lots, lots of people in this space now but uh yeah no sometimes it's it is literally mental and gets me a little bit upset um <laughs> when i have these conversations um because sometimes they'll be with people who are like dealing with medical data or something and i'm like you mm -hmm. you guys what the f come on um so yeah, enough of that ramble. But <laughs> <laughs> I do, I do think it's funny. I've it's sometimes I tactically don't talk about ethics. Mm. Like I just never say the word. Um, and I've had experiences where I have said the word and I've got an immediate pushback. Um, so it's really interesting what you say about that kind of like you know the the risk. You know, no one wants people to come in and tell them no, and and people are in, get nervous when there's someone with a risk mindset mm. around, and they think they're just going to be told everything that's broken yeah. and not not be given a way to fix it as well. I think, um, and also I think some people, you know, back to what we sort of said at the start, like some people just think that machine learning data science is objective. And so there's no room for ethics because, you know, either the data is just reflecting the world the way it is. And so, you know, what, what can you do about that? Um, or the kind of calculations are inherently good because they uncover more truth, mm. um, even if there is a bias inherent in that that, that is misleading you or, 
can lead to poor decision making. So, yeah, I think it's really it's really tricky to understand. All right, where's the main like part of resist? Where's what's the main source of your resistance to this? Yeah. Um, and then yeah, working with that, it is hard. I do think I do think ultimately it needs to be that push to quality. The quality is just going to be so much better. Mm-hmm. Like trust me on this. Yeah. This is how I make your product look great. Yeah, and, and that's a good justification for more diversity as well. The the quality mm-hmm. stuff, because um, it's you know better ideas, more fitting for your different users less impacts the users you haven't thought about because we'll think about them all this sort of good stuff um do you think there's is there stuff which is niggling at you um things that we haven't really sorted out yet and and when when we talk about ai ethics and you know what are the things left to do do you think or the areas that um have kind of more uh space for research I think one of the things that really struck me coming over to North America is that really that connection to on the ground organizing and ethics. Um, I think in the UK, I, I realized that I, you know, could probably spend a heap of time talking about AI ethics and never actually really get to the heart of like social justice issues or organizing or mobilizing around social justice issues. Um, You know, whereas I think that lived experience really drives a huge number of, of academic research work in the, in the US as well as, you know, kind of um, changes for policy and stuff. So I think I think we do as a, as a space, we're pretty white, we're pretty privileged. And so, you know, really like being aware of that and taking steps to connect the AI ethics work that we do to actual like on the ground kind of political resistance and improvements, mm. you know. Um, yeah, I think that's really, I think that's a, a blind spot, definitely for me, um, that, that I've been thinking about. And also, I think there's, I think we're on our way to having these more multidisciplinary approaches and, and having a designer and a data scientist in the team and that making sense to people. Um, but I do think that's still, we still just need to keep working on those muscles and, and making that more commonplace. Um, and one thing that I would, I would love to see us doing um is like attaching a carbon counter to things you know within you know when we look at like how we're like you know training models you know the amount of like effort it takes to then run that model again like what is the carbon counter on that Mm. what are you doing about that how do you how can your kind of carbon impact of your model like how can that factor be one of the deciding factors when you're choosing like which model to run whether to deploy something or not yeah so yeah 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 i mean that's a really good uh, point i think all this comes down to what you said at the beginning about like doing good right with this technology and if we're not kind of like at both ends making sure that it's doing good you know in the making of it and also in the deployment of it then we're probably failing somewhere aren't we on the ethical kind of reason or like purpose of it you know it took um a whole year's worth of electricity of a small town to make this um and we're just selling better ads yay Yay. great (laughs) exactly go us yeah and (laughs) you know and i think we all get because we all like love cool stuff Mm -hmm. uh we get like so caught up in oh my god like we can do this like amazing new things now uh which is great and, and may have a an application in selling more ads um but you know but at the same time you know, do you remember the conversations when people were saying, oh, but you know, but machine learning is a black box. There's no way we could ever interpret the results. Yeah. Well, 
now we have lots of ways of interpreting results um, because people have, have put in the effort to build the tools and make that a priority. Yep. And so everything here is is person made. And so we we I think it's more about really questioning why we're not investing in that thing. Is it because it's inconvenient? Is it because it just might be like low on the priority list and rather than it, that it's impossible, I think. Mm. So I think that's that's kind of where in the game of like convincing people that this stuff isn't impossible anymore. Yep. Nice. Um, which is that's that's a really good fun, uh, rewarding. It's a really good message um to to leave us all with. Um but I do have one more question for you, Josie, um if you have time. Is that okay? Mm -hmm. Yep. Um yeah. so the last question we always ask on the podcast is uh, what are you excited about and what scares you about this AI, digital, uh, machine learning mediated future? Ooh, I'm excited about, I'm excited about driverless cars. <laughs> I want one. It's going to be great. I I'm, I'm ready. Yeah. Um, so I'm excited about driverless cars and I'm excited about driverless cars because I think there's an opportunity to, um, if we think about these kind of integrated transport networks and if we apply it in a way that makes movement around a city accessible to everyone, it could be a really amazing way of addressing fuel poverty of, you know, not, you know, I guess, punishing people because they have to live further out of town, away from their jobs. So I think it could be a really interesting way of, of I guess, approach, approaching like, you know, social justice inclusion things in our cities. Mm. Uh, and London particularly, it would just be incredible. Um, so I'm really excited about that. And the thing that terrifies me is that we are automating our values and our biases into these systems without thinking. We then deploy them on a massive scale and we've not yet figured out how to take responsibility for the impacts of that and that stresses me out right in a significant way and and do you have any answers for that or is that just a thing that is being worked out played out right now i think i mean if you look at like the you know the the recent us election with all of the bots on twitter and you know all these kind of you know misinformation campaigns and just it, it just is incredible mm. how quickly something can spread and how quickly it tangibly changes how societies run um that like that just can't stand we can't you know be beholden to that as a society anymore and uh, it really has to be regulation it has to be government saying this is not the type of society that we we want to have mm. um, and we have a duty to safeguard so you know, I think there needs to be a limit on how like algorithmically driven things are on platforms, especially um, like social media platforms. And but, you know, I think in a lot of ways, our political leaders are catching up because this technology has been driven out of business um, and just hasn't necessarily had the same kind of oversight and investment from the public sector as other innovations in the past have had. Mm. The kind of line of sight is not as clear as it used to be. And so I think, you know, governments are playing catch up. I know the UK government has done, a, you know, and, and Parliament has done a huge amount of work in the last few years to play catch up and, and you know, be on top of this stuff. Mm. But, yeah, I think that we need to see that happening more and more. So back to that political mo mobilisation, everybody. Nice. <laughs> right, right to your local member. <laughs> well, write to them and um, kind of hopefully tell them what the issue is describe the issue because mm -hmm. one of the things that we were butting up against in some of my work is that 
these leaders aren't always tech literate or necessarily up on the latest AI trends, right? So um, there's a, a certain kind of disconnect there, which is probably part of the problem. But like you said, they are, you know, there is effort there to try and do something about that. So hopefully that would be good. I, can't, um, I don't know if you remember, um, but do you, do you remember watching the um, trial with Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg last year in the US? Um Oh, I, I think I, I don't know if I caught much of it. I caught some of it. Though. It was really funny. Like it's because it was filmed and televised. The the questions and the things that some of the um, the members were asking Mark Zuckerberg were just wholly inappropriate or like for how the thing works. Right. So it's kind of like just Mark just sitting there going, rolling his eyes, going, oh, another stupid question. Okay, well, no, it doesn't work like wow. that. But da, da 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 da, like like continuously, and it was like so annoying, <laughs> so frustrating for people oh, who like God. had better questions. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> you know, would take him to task. Yeah. Uh, it's unfortunate, but I mean, they weren't all bad, but they and a lot of them were bad. Yeah. No, I think I remember a clip of him saying, um, um, we make money through advertising. Uh, um, um, and the guy was like, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, God, this is so uh, terrible. Days of this, <laughs> oh, days. Oh, I know. And I think, I think that's a really interesting kind of symptom of, you know, in, in Europe and the UK, the mindset is the public is public institutions need to respond to these issues. Mm. So, you know, principles at a government level, um, regulation, you know, there's the whole all yep. party parliamentary group party. on AI yeah. and yeah, party time. Um, and you know, and and so that that's there and that's working. Mm. Whereas over here in, in the US, you know, any kind of action has actually happened at a state level and it's been driven by local um, campaigns mm. and mobilizations. Mm. Right. So the algorithmic justice league of like you know are doing an amazing amount of work in this space um but it's it's lo it's locally driven so um and you know because they just think about it in a completely flipped way mm. um so i'm like i'm not so i'm not surprised yeah <laughs> really not surprised i mean it sucked it, sh it shouldn't be like that yeah. but you anyway, know i'm not surprised that mark zuckerberg was just like <laughs> you know, not really giving away any secrets in in the, that questioning. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Um, well, I think we've we've come to the end now. Um, <laughs> you've got to go to work and I have got to go to the weekend because it's Friday night for me over here. Um, so yeah. thank you so much for your time. How do people find out about you, follow you and connect? So I'm on Twitter at swords to young um, I mainly retweet and like things. Um, uh, so I'm a good lurker. Um, and also you can track me down on LinkedIn as well. So yeah, uh, reach out. If you've got any questions about feminist chatbots, I'm your girl. <laughs> so um, thanks very much for your time and I'll hopefully speak to you soon. Yeah, thanks Ben, thanks for having me. Hi and welcome to the end of the podcast. Thanks again to Josie. Really nice to have an opportunity to speak to her. And also it's nice to speak to another embedded AI ethics person who's down in the trenches doing this work. Please go follow her on Twitter and LinkedIn. Check out more episodes of machine-ethics.net. And if you can, support us at patreon.com forward slash machine ethics. Thank you so much for listening and I will see you next time.